We're doing like musical chairs with like who's showing up. And who <laughs> I think me and Sadie both turned off our VPNs. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Although I need to yell at all the people doing bad opsec on Twitter about VPNs. Uh, yeah. Girl. I, I only have one of those. I have the express VPN just because they don't give me crap for torrenting. Yeah. That's like the reason to have a VPN is if you're going to like torrent. <laughs> I, I, my last VPN kicked me off. Yeah. Which, They're based in the UK. Get Molvad. It's like five bucks a month. Yeah. I have Mozilla and it's like five bucks a month. Five Molvad devices. is really good and they're not in a five eyes country and you don't have to have an email address or any sort of identifying information you can even like mail them money if you don't want it tied to a credit mm-hmm. card it's pretty fun Mulvad. yeah m-u-l-l-v-a-d it's the one that like privacy guides they used to be um privacy tools.io but there was a split that happened there but I, I get a lot of my OPSEC info from privacy guides. Um, that's how I learned how like VPNs are kind of nonsense. Or if you're wanting to like watch UK Netflix or something. I just sound like crap all the time. Mm. That's how I watch this like Thai drama that I've been watching is I change my VPN to Singapore and it lets me watch it. I'm going to like cry. I got really good feedback from my uh, salon I did. Yay. That's nice. the best feeling. I was so nervous because Violet was in there and I'm like, I'm going to embarrass myself in front of Violet shit. <laughs> I'm going to show I don't know anything about metadata. Mm-hmm. It was fine. I think this is the log sec thing, right? No, this. So on Saturday I did an inter inter intellect salon and they were, they do like old style, like in the style, like French salons where someone picks a topic and then they kind of like lead a discussion on it or you could do workshops all sorts of stuff and i did one on description and power looking at metadata not just as like library metadata but like sort of introducing this topic to like people outside of librarianship you know metadata is describing information objects and everything is an information object including us so like what's on your driver's license is metadata about you let's talk about that like the power that might give people over you let's talk about how this can shape culture most of the people weren't library people and like really insightful shit there because like you know obviously i'm very pro us like you know we do have a authority and expertise in in this you know we did go to school for it and all that user centered shouldn't necessarily mean that we don't use our expertise however wow like that doesn't mean we shouldn't be listening to like how people who aren't metadata librarians are talking about and interpreting metadata they just like normally don't get presented in it in a way that's like approachable or that makes sense to them unless they work in like business or software engineering where metadata they might work with it there or they're data engineers i put quotes around that because if you remove metadata from our titles we suddenly make over a hundred thousand dollars a year right <laughs> This is the joke there. Um, but yeah, it was like really cool. It was like two hours and it could have gone longer. Um, I just like saw part I, of a soul in your body, Becky. Yeah. Whatever's left. Yeah, so, just left. At this point, I'm a husk. So yeah, it was like really interesting to have like all these people from like various different backgrounds. There were a few of our library Twitter colleagues there. Um 
but all like talking about this and like bouncing off each other and getting like kind of philosophical and metaphysical with it, but also being very practical of like, but this helps us sometimes. Like, how do we balance that? It was fucking cool. And I'm really proud of myself. So it was fun. I, I learned a lot from it, actually. So 10 out of 10. Would do it again. <laughs> And before we begin, I was like, I hear a cat. You sounded uh, auto tuned. You're yelling from a distance. Do you have anything to say? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was sort of like meow. <laughs> <laughs> What's the cat's name? Her name is Sophia. Um, Sophia, hi, Sophia. Sophie for short because she likes the sofa. Sophie. Excellent. So she will be adding Welcome to the podcast, Sophie. She will be <laughs> adding her commentary as we go along. So I don't have a mute button for her. She doesn't have a raise paw button, so um <laughs> She waits for no man. <laughs> she waits for no human. Maybe Arthur will show up and they could be friends. <laughs> this this podcast for, for your for this episode's for this week's episode, it's mainly going to be cat sounds and just existential angst about souls leaving bodies after reminding ourselves that if we just take out certain words from our job titles, we're going to get paid a lot more. I thought the Beach Boys already made that album. Meow. <laughs> 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 This is now a Pet Sounds podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Justin. I'm a Skull Come librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm C. I work IT at a public library. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Jay. I'm a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. And we have a guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sorry, I forgot to mention that part. <laughs> <laughs> I am Becky. I am a library data privacy consultant and all-around troublemaker. And troublesome cataloger, and my pronouns are she/her. Welcome. Um, so we've got a lot, and ALA happened, and a lot of stuff happened to ALA that really there was just not enough time to cover it all. Like, boy, do we have segment material! <laughs> <laughs> I did get to make a drop out of it, so here we go. ALA McGuffin. Nice. Beautiful. Perfect. So the one thing I just wanted to bring up, there was a lot of stuff I wanted to bring up, but the main one was a panel put on by, I believe the ALA group is called United Against Book Bans, Unite Against Book Bans, which is an ALA project in which Nancy Pearl, uh, the sort of rock star librarian of the group, said relatively upfront in the opening statement that even Holocaust denial books must be included in the collection, to which the other panelist, who is not a librarian, is an author named Jason Reynolds, just sort of had to go, uh, okay, uh, as far as I know. I have not seen the full recording yet, so 
um, you know, I'm working with limited information, but basically from what the original person who did the, the, who did decide to name the panelists said, I don't think he was on board with this, but couldn't back out. So one thing we talked about a while back was library Twitter pylons. And I said, my concern there was one day they'll go after the wrong person. And that's what happened, which is a lot of people got really mad at Jason Reynolds instead of Nancy Pearl, who is the person who actually said the thing. To be fair, I did kind of follow a bunch, some threads. People were really mad at Nancy Pearl. She just never responded after her initial, this is what I meant, even though it was sounded like it was exactly what she said. Yeah. Not actually yeah. a clarifying statement, but there were a lot of comments on that being like, Nancy, no, or this is not right. And she just never responded. So instead- and- redirected to the person who was responding and was listening. And for context, Jason Reynolds is a black man and Nancy Pearl is a white woman. Also, a lot of people didn't know that Nancy Pearl was a librarian. I saw on Twitter, people were like, who the hell is this? She's not even a librarian. I'm like, no, she's kind of very famously a librarian and that makes it worse. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for context, uh, action and update, Nancy did post what she called an apology on Twitter, which was a non-apology. She was the, I'm appalled that people thought I said include Holocaust denial literature. Well, she not only said that based on the reports from people who are live tweeting in the room, she also has a history of saying this. And there was a tweet pointing this out in an article like 2017, 2018, I believe, after Charlottesville. She mentioned something akin to what she said at this panel. So she's got history. Yeah, I had to explain who Nancy Pearl is. It's like, do you know the shushing librarian action figure? Yeah, that's her. I also can't escape Nancy because Nancy was a former Seattle Public Library employee so she's all over i was about to say she was a seattle public librarian person for a while you know i do have i do have the deluxe nancy pearl library set that actually has the library backdrop and the plastic cart i think i'm just going to keep the plastic cart right now the plastic book cart i I think that's the most valuable thing Mm -hmm. in that in that kit you might need to do some like lego cataloging or something or like little miniatures or something you why get rid of her for your book cart yeah Yeah. But I mean, it did force people to um, reckon with, well, a lot of things. It was incredibly hard to follow where everyone was was taking the conversation. But a lot of uh, how do you do call outs? Is there a better way of doing it that provides contextual information in the original call out? But I think the original poster was of the opinion that mm, he agreed a lot. So I felt like I had to put it in that way, which... You know, I, I can't know that I wouldn't have fucked up in the same way. Yeah. Cause it's like, you know, there is a power difference there to some extent. He might also agree. I don't know. I haven't watched it yet. So I doubt he yeah. did, but so yeah, that was Ailey Mageddon. Ailey Mageddon. We've got a lot to talk about, but Becky did want to bring up something quickly about privacy and the row overturning because of SB8, and that's relevant to me because I'm in Texas, which focuses to vague definitions of aids and abets providing access. And of course, in Texas, this means that any private citizen can bring lawsuit, which means they could be sued for providing information, which is also incredibly vague because we probably have books about 
abortion providers somewhere. Yeah. And even just going to the library and doing a search, an internet search on a pop-up computer, that again, SB8 and a lot of copycat laws that we're finding popping up throughout the country might interpret that as aiding in abetting, seeking information. And so not many people know off the bat that privacy is not a constitutional right. And the basis of why Roe being overturned is so scary as a privacy person, why library workers should be scared, is that what we find in the majority opinions and the concurring opinions, particularly with Thomas, that particular right to privacy that has been inferred by Roe and a whole slew of case law throughout the years through the Supreme Court has been invalidated. And so with Thomas's opinion in particular, he wants to go back to other court cases that have been decided based on that same interpretation of intimate privacy. So we have contraceptives, we have same-sex marriage. There's going to be a lot more down that line. And for example, cats versus United States, which gives us the reasonable expectation of privacy in the public setting. And a good portion of ALA intellectual freedom materials and privacy materials references that law as a way to build your legal case to provide privacy at the library. And so at this point, I don't know what else to do beyond screaming into the void, beyond just saying, if you haven't already locked down your computers in terms of making sure nothing's logged, refresh the image every time there's a user session that ends, shore up your privacy and security practices, it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yep. Some states do have stronger privacy laws that their state constitutions have been found to hold. So this is why Florida doesn't have an immediate abortion ban, but Florida can also amend its constitution pretty easily. Um, so I, I did have to send out some emails to faculty I work with who do oral histories and say, you need to start changing your training to cover um, if people are talking about abortion or, and I included trans affirming healthcare because in Texas that's, almost certainly going to happen immediately. There is a really good article that I just talked about in that one presentation I gave back in May. It's called Testimonies, the Cost of Sharing Their Voice or something. And it's several examples of like archives and special collections doing like oral histories basically, and like the legal and privacy ramifications of it and what they did in those cases. This is how I learned about the Belfast mm -hmm. project, but in it is also a collection of oral histories around the time of when Roe v. Wade was first put into act and what this library did for like redacting information. Like Becky, I would love to see what you, um, if you ever read it, like what you take of what they did mm -hmm. But I thought it was very good because it leaves behind no data that could be collected for like legal searches or anything. Like they even like removed the original like cataloging records okay. and, and whatnot for everything. They redacted everything about three times. Like they would pass it among the different staff members to make sure they hadn't missed things. Um, I'll, I'll find the title of it. I, I first heard of it based off of a, a presentation I saw at DLF back in um, 2018 in Vegas. 
and then it got turned into a journal article. So let me find that real quick. Yeah, that gets into a greater um, conversation about library workers as information fiduciaries, making sure that we uphold our end of using our patron data to the patron's benefit and not have not handle it or use it in a way that ultimately harms them. Now, some state library state laws put you at a better position to protect patron privacy, but others, not so much. So going back to Florida, the library uh, confidentiality and privacy law gives explicit permission for parents and guardians to access their minor child's library records up to a certain age. And so for bills that are targeting LGBTQIA plus materials, libraries will need to figure out ways to protect their minor patrons in the same, while at the same time having to uphold or deciding to uphold, they can decide not to uphold how they're going to respond to that requirement. Yeah, that that reminds me, I was actually just reading a Washington Post article um, just yesterday well, actually, it was like four this morning because I couldn't sleep and this didn't help um, of uh, conservatives going after like uh, gay straight alliance groups at schools. And there was an instance here in Marysville, like in Washington in Marysville, where a safe space after school club at a elementary school got shut down and canceled because of these. And it's all sort of the same thread. Like I have a right to know exactly what my kid is up to at all times, sort of authoritarianism, which I mean, if it's happening in schools, it's going to happen in other libraries. Cause that means it's happening in a school library, which means it's going to filter out to public libraries, things, things I lose sleep over and then lose more sleep over. Cause I stay up reading things I shouldn't read it for in the morning. I know that ALA is working on getting some guidelines and just actions out and securing Wi-Fi, securing computers and whatnot. And I started going down the rabbit hole of, well, what happens? You know, you can secure your computers, making sure they're not tracking users. But if your security camera, which is being maintained and the footage being archived at the police department is pointing towards those computers, you have a problem. Another problem is those mobile surveillance cameras that we see pop up in various neighborhoods, you know, suddenly from out of nowhere, the next day they're there. So worst case scenario, they could be used to track people who are around the area of the physical library. So there's there's a lot of ways users can get tracked, even if the library hardens their security and privacy protections. Yeah, the Crime Stoppers Towers is a lot of them where I live. Um, and they just park them in like crazy places. Like uh, like in my apartment complex, they just put one half on the sidewalk, half in the middle of the road. And it was just there for like, I don't know, a month. But yeah, just right in the middle of everyone's houses. So they are very common. So we are going to talk about our main topic today, which is... OCLC is suing Clarivate. Should get Law and Order or something. Everyone likes that better. 
my favorite law, like my favorite dun, dun, was when someone did tainted love. It's like, now I know I've got you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just the like law and order, like SVU. Bam, bam. OCLC has filed suit against Clarivate for their product called Metador, which we'll get into how it works, but basically OCLC is saying those records are proprietary information and that their contracts with libraries mean that those libraries cannot change cannot hand over those records to Metador because what Metador does is takes those records from your ILS um, and sort of indexes them and allows other people to look through it and find out where uh, what your local holdings are rather than a centralized database, which is how WorldCat works. That's the long and the short of it. Is this one of those, like, whoever wins, we lose <laughs> situations? Um, yes. Because it Could still be. confuses me. OCLC sells themselves as a member cooperative. They are not a member cooperative. They are for-profit business that claims to be a non-profit business, but in reality, they had to change the law so they can keep their lo- non-profit status. But no, the Library Loon wrote two very good articles dressing down OCLC's practices and essentially charging catalogers and metadata workers for their labor, which is essentially put stuff into a centralized database, bibliographic data, holdings, whatnot, and then sell it right back to the libraries for additional products. And the Library Loon is hoping that OCLC loses, but... At the same, uh, on the other side of the coin, Clarivate has so much of a market share in the ILS markets. So essentially, we have two monopolies in their respective areas, OCLC being bibliographic data, um, Clarivate being almost everything else. So having Clarivate be win this battle, it would be interesting to see how the courts rule over data ownership. If they say that bibliographic data cannot be licensed or owned, then I think that might be a favorable outcome. But I have a feeling that this case is going to go towards licensing and how those records can be licensed and how that licensing can restrict, further restrict any possibility of sharing the work that we do as library workers and how these monopolies can monetize that work even further. So I've seen people cheer on Clearvate. I've seen people cheer on OCLC because even though I give a lot of shit to OCLC, there are a lot of libraries that would not be able to do the work that they are able to do for information access and retrieval at their libraries to do cataloging of any sort if they didn't have access to the records in OCLC, didn't have access to uh, WorldCat. So OCLC, again, being the monopoly that it is, serves a vital role. Even though there's been reduced membership and use of WorldCat, it still serves a vital role to find records that are not too crappy in terms of having vendors just ship you stubs or having LC records that are stubs. Eventually you'll get into you'll find records in WorldCat that have been enhanced and there are a lot of libraries out there that do not have the ability to spend that time to enhance the bibliographic record to be able to provide better access of those materials for their library patrons. 
And so that's the very long way of answering most likely libraries are going to lose. If nothing else, our subscription prices and fees are going to raise because of all the legal fees. Yeah, I was at an institution that was an early adopter for WMS, and that was sort of my most day-to-day interactions with cataloging because I did some connection stuff in grad school, but it really didn't, I didn't do enough of it to really understand how the system was working. Whereas for us using WMS, WorldCat was just everything. It was our discovery layer. It was where we pulled our records. If we had to make modifications, it was pretty straightforward. We didn't have to use connection to push records. And since we were beta testers, we had a pretty good deal because we were a small library. So yeah, I mean, tons of people would have hard a hard time doing this work if uh, if OCLC didn't exist. And the library loon pointed this out, but there are a lot of parallels to scholarly communications in terms of why things one how both publishing and and cataloging record retention are services, but also how those things had to consolidate at a certain point in time because of it, the explosion in volume. So scientific publishing had to consolidate in the 50s and 60s. And uh, OCLC also had to consolidate because there was, with uh, with other, I can't remember the history perfectly, but basically uh, OCLC ate up two of its early competitors, Washington something. This is long before my time. Yeah, um, RLN and W, yeah, Washington, uh, I forgot the name. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but now it's possibly time to start thinking about other ways of doing this, which is kind of what Clarivate's going for. And I think that's where both uh, Library Loon and Karen Coyle, who I, I pulled some stuff from their blog post, which is basically talking about the difference between a centralized repository of records versus pulling straight from the ILSs with Metador and doing a more peer-to-peer indexing, even though that peer-to-peer indexing is mediated by a for-profit monopoly or duopoly. So, you know, it's not great, but it could be technologically a step forward. Technologically, it could be a step forward, but I think Karen also points out that the way that Metador is structured. There could be a lot of, it could be a technological step forward, but in the terms of quality and the way that catalogers and metadata workers can do their work, it might be a step, a lateral step or a step backward. Because if you're not having a centralized database, you're going to be dealing with a lot of duplicates. You're going to be dealing with a lot of records that are so localized that you might end up doing a lot more work editing that record than you would have if you had just went to connection, downloaded the master record, and then edited that record to have your local information in there and send it off on its merry way into your ILS. So what Metador is doing, I can see the way why they put it up that way, because again, this is speculation. They didn't want to appear that they're directly competing with OCLC's WorldCat. They say, oh, let's do a decentralized version. That should that should not be a one-to-one direct competitor. But OCLC is feeling threatened enough that they are trying to shut this down at the beginning stages of the development. And the way that I'm reading the documents from OCLC's suit, 
I don't know if they actually have really solid evidence that WorldCat records are in Metador already. They're doing, they're, I, I think the discovery phase is going to be a lot of, it's going to be a fishing expedition. The fact that OCLC was able to get a temporary restraining order against Clarivate from Clarivate talking to their own customers about Metador tells me that the judge who is presiding this case is going to be very friendly to anything that OCLC says. So this might be being like tinfoil hatting, but the whole like it being called meta door, and I know it's meaning metadata, but then it's like, oh, we're going to do decentralized. And I'm like, is this about to move into some like blockchain nonsense? <sighs> Because that's the new hotness. I'm like, no, because they're not doing like bit torrenting and like cool, like <laughs> you nerd broke shit. Becky. <laughs> they're not doing this, isn't some nerd shit. <laughs> like, is this, is this slowly moving towards like, what if we did metadata on the blockchain? Oh, God. Is that what's about to happen here? Okay, so this ties into a conversation I've had with many Kyle loggers in the past about wanting a history of who edited the records in WorldCat. So you can sue them <laughs> for how bad so they how are. how bad they are. Because right now you can only see the uh, three uh, symbol, um, OC, three letter OCLC symbol. But I had conversations with catalogers, and this has been a long, uh, this is a tangent, but this is a long, long grief of many cataloggers wanting to know who specifically changed that record in Rollcat that made it that much worse. But that's a tangent. But blockchain, uh, oh God. I'm not sure if Clarivate is doing anything in that space. And I don't know if this would be the if this would be the product where they would branch out into it. I think more likely since Clarivate is a data analytics and intelligence company at heart, I think my tinfoil hat comes into play when they start finding ways to monitor and surveil cataloging work in the system itself. Because cataloging yeah. has been traditionally and historically surveilled in terms of um, cost efficiency analysis, seeing how much it takes to catalog a particular item, what's the time between receiving it and getting it onto the shelf. I can see Clarivate developing analytics tools that can measure the productivity of people who are doing metadata work and cataloging work for managers to then run reports, run a cost analysis, and then quote unquote, optimize the cataloging workflow. Any mention of productivity makes me want to puke. Just putting that out there. Yeah. I remember having this, like, and I've had this thought this whole time I've been in libraries, but it's this, like, libraries are becoming a business, and I hate that about it. Like, everything is, it's, we're taking from business to, like, yeah, optimize and whatnot, and it's just moving more and more towards capitalist bullshit, and libraries aren't a business, they're a service, and it drives me nuts, but yeah, I can see Becky, I can completely see that happening. Just, yeah, just it, given the history of outsourcing cataloging and outsourcing technical services work, I do not put it past Clarivate to come up with a productivity worker surveillance tool that you can then run the 
cost-benefit analysis on how your technical services department is running. And oh, by the way, Clarivate has this wonderful new product that you can buy enhanced metadata records. I've mentioned this before, but when I was in the tech services interest group for the Florida Library Association, I said to someone who was at a big library, they're going after catalogers. There, there might not be catalogers at your institution forever. And this person kind of blew me off. And I was like, there are tons of small libraries that already don't have anyone doing any of this work. And it's all vendor provided. And it's all, you know, we had WMS, so we had a little bit of control over our records, but not a whole lot. Most of it was just big imports from uh, knowledge base collections, and those were a good service. But, you know, if the vendor was shit at putting the metadata in the knowledge base, then the records were shit. That was a conversation I had to have with faculty and even like tech services staff and whatnot when I was at UNH when Primo wasn't behaving the way we were told it should behave was that like, there's only so much I can do with the metadata that we're given and can't even change because it's through the discovery layer and not our records, right? Like there's only so much you can do with crappy metadata that you don't have any control over. And it's funny when I read the historical literature about outsourcing cataloging, there's this one article in particular by Dunkel, 1996, talking about outsourcing the catalog department. And Dunkel actually puts down two reasons. They cost too much and they're troublesome. That may or may not be the origin story of the troublesome catalogger moniker. Um, (laughs) But uh, I like it when Dunkel said, made the observation, well, reading Wright State University Libraries Director, for folks who do not know their cataloging history, Wright State was one of the more infamous libraries that outsourced their entire cataloging operation to vendors in the 1990s. They got rid of all the catalogers. There wasn't keeping a cataloger on board. They just got rid of all of them. And the observation was cataloging was not a core service, was not a core activity, but the output of cataloging is a core activity. So that separates the people doing the work from the actual product of the work, which if you don't have the people who are doing the work, how are you going to get that people? How are you going to get that output? And it's just baffling to see the administrator from Wright State just talk about this and not getting the disconnect between you need that activity of cataloging, the act of cataloging, in order to get that output for your public services library, for your public service library workers, and for your catalog and your discovery layer and almost everything else that relies on metadata to work. And that sort of gets into the historical devaluing of technical services as part of the library profession, which that could be a long tangent. Yeah. As as someone who worked in public services before moving in IT, the whole technical services collection management bubble has always just been sort of opaque in a magical way. Like I know I can I know how to look at records and I know what tags are and stuff, but it just seems like it's an awful lot of knowledge to need to have it to work. So yeah, that sort of devaluation is baffling to me as a person who does not do cataloging work. And I figure if even I can very obviously see the value in it, like why can't these people who run libraries see it as well? 
it's all collaborative now. It's all vendor records. We don't have to make our own anymore. Why do we need original catalogers if the records already exist? It's all just batch loading now, right? Yeah. And then you remove your whole staff, and that's exactly what it turns into. Yeah, I think there's some stuff in here about uh, cataloging labor costs and high cataloging costs are always focused on labor costs. So I think there's a definite ideological point being made when your catalogers tell you these records aren't going to work and then implementing them anyway, which I believe is what Harvard did. They just had five of their their copy catalogers resign, not just recently. I don't know when this article was, but that was what happened was the copy catalogers resigned and then the, the library admin moved forward with the new outsourcing well, the new flow process, because basically they had a reorg. So yeah. it caused a lot of problems and that departments were, I guess, I guess across different areas. And so they had to different area managers rather than all the catalogers are reporting the same person. So like a matrix model kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure what you would call that. I know it's just ends up with a lot of problems. That's why we legacy institutions merged we had sort of like, this is the collection development person for science on this campus. And there's the person on this campus. And we finally just did away with that. But, you know, it it was a process of sort of centralizing and not centralizing. There's a lot of politics in it in terms of making sure no one felt neglected, either particular campus. Uh, and then we all went remote and it didn't matter anyways. So it was like, okay, you know, we could have been doing this the whole time. But my university is very old fashioned in some ways, but also is is always uh, resolutely working class. So, you know, I can imagine like if Alma was able to say, like, here's the cat, here's the data on how long it takes to catalog this record and get it to the shelf. I think everyone would have the good sense to just not run that report. It'd be like, nah, I'm not going to mention that Alma can do that to the dean. So it's it's not a militant uh, class solidarity here, but people just know when to cover their own ass. So, you know, it's, it's more of a common sense class solidarity. If I get lucky, maybe I can get us all unionized someday. Unions in Texas are hard. There's something in here about collaborative cataloging and why Library of Congress is still not the answer. Could you explain that a little bit? So when we were talking about cataloging and alternatives of WorldCat, a lot of people look towards Library of Congress or LC with the misconception that Library of Congress is a national library. It is not. Unlike many other national libraries you will find in Europe, Asia, Africa, and elsewhere, Library of Congress' primary focus is serving Congress. They might have a hand in setting particular cataloging standards. They also do, you know, library of Congress subject headings, which, again, primary focus is the U.S. Congress. The fact that the Library of Congress is part of the federal government and does not have the stability that you would find in other places in terms of funding, how many times has Library of Congress shut down because of federal bills not being passed, bills aren't being paid, vital infrastructure of the websites that library... (laughs) library workers use for cataloging gets shut down as well. So basically everything's to a standstill until Congress decides to pay the library. 
So we have that budget issue. Another issue is a technical issue. Historically, Library Congress has not been very strong in terms of technological infrastructure, thanks to various past Librarian of Congress's decisions. But there have been some turnaround with IT. They're doing some catch up on the actual infrastructure itself, but if they're going to try and replace WorldCat, I don't know if they're going to be able to do it just flat out technologically very soon. It will have to have a period of stability. Developers, they probably do have the developers to do it. It's just having that stability in terms of what happens in DC to be able to do that. Yeah, plus the um, the busybodies in Congress tend to get um, upset about things once in a while, so they can also directly force the Library of Congress to do certain things like change subject headings or so I don't know. Plus, Library of Congress has something like 20 million records. OCLC has like 500 million. So there's a difference of scale in terms of if they were legally allowed to just take all of OCLC's records, of course, that would be a favorable outcome of this case. But I doubt that's what's going to happen. But again, I don't know if I would trust it to them. Uh, I think there's probably some other outcomes, which brings us to the report of the ICOLC, OCLC task force, which brought up some things that I wasn't aware of. For instance, that like 50% of the holdings in the underlying WorldCat catalog are displayed on worldcat.org. I thought all of them were, but that comes from working with WMS. So I knew that our records were going straight into worldcat.org so we could use it as a, a discovery tool because all of our local records would be in there. I guess some of the questions from the report were what happens long-term if OCLC's WorldCat loses its relevance? You mentioned already that some of the co- some of the uh, subscriber count is already going down, but what does that mean for libraries if the records continue to degrade? That's a good question because given the change, changing landscape of cataloging and metadata work and the increased reliance on vendor services and vendor records. One of the things that WorldCat does in terms of monetizing the bibliographic data work that gets done by libraries is the products that are built on top of it. So you have interlibrary loan, for example, is a huge one. And to have a way to provide interlibrary loan services on scale without OCLC being the main player. There are other organizations that do use other systems for interlibrary loan, but they somehow are connected back to WorldCat, if I remember that correctly. So for... Yeah, because doesn't Ex Libris have one in like Alma? I'm not too familiar with the ex, with, with Alma's ILL capabilities, and I'm not sure if there's any tie back to because Triple I has inReach, but again, where are those records coming from? Where are those holdings coming from? So we then go back to a decentralized. Well, it's not decentralized. We go back into smaller silos if we're now going back to separate library service platform systems to rely on holding holding information for ILL, for physical items. Right. And the reason you have that three code item in your, your cataloging record, your OCLC sort of identifier is that's also tied to your physical space. So that tells you like how far away is this record because this local holding record is 
by ours was like H08. So H08 tells you, okay, this is in Naples, Florida. So that's where the physical item is. I can't imagine how ILL would work without WorldCat, quite honestly. But we'll get to infrastructure in a second. Because sometimes centralization can be good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, decentralization is not always the answer. I mean, for again, a lot for a lot of libraries who don't have the labor to put into copy cataloging, getting records that actually are fairly decent from WorldCat is about their best way of providing the best level of access to those resources for their patrons. I want to bring it back to OCLC, though, because this is not the first time OCLC has sued another ILS company. There was a Sky River lawsuit, which is something I was not familiar with. Could you run us through kind of what happened with Sky River? All right. So for those folks who are not familiar with their... uh with their uh, OCLC litigation history. This is actually a case where OCLC was getting sued by Sky River. Sky River was poised to be a direct competitor to WorldCat. Now, Sky River at first was a separate company, but it was closely tied to III. So it was fairly, it, it was an open secret that Sky River was essentially a III product. And Sky River was claiming that OCLC had a unfair advantage, market advantage. But eventually, the lawsuit was dropped after III decided to observe Sky River into the core business, which was kind of interesting because a lot of people were thinking that Sky River had a pretty good case considering that OCLC was the only game in town. And particularly, it was coming on the heels of OCLC's attempt to grab the copyright of the record of the bibliographic records in their database. But again, that lawsuit was dropped. So we wouldn't even know how would it would have been settled at that point. Now, I do remember that OCLC also was eyeing library thing for possible litigation because library thing was offering records that could or could not be quote unquote world cat records. And so that gets us into the question of what is a world cat record versus what is a record that was created by a individual library that just so happens to subscribe to world cat. Yeah. Who is the author and when did you decide that you know, copyright was transferred, if that's not in your user agreement, like every website now knows to say, if you post something on our website, you're giving us a royalty-free forever license to use your work, if not just giving us copyright over the work entirely. But did OCLC know to do that with Mark Records? And how would you prove it? We talked about this provenance problem. Yeah. um, So the copyright status of Mark Records and bibliographic records is a big question mark. And that's one of the reasons why some people want the current lawsuit to go to trial, because they want to have that conversation about data ownership. A mark record, a bibliographic record, can be viewed in a couple of ways. So you have information in the record that talks about the description of the item that you have on hand, how many pages it is, what is the title, who created this particular work that is either either hand or is in a particular database. So those can be construed as facts and facts cannot be copyrighted. 
Now, when we get into... No copyright law in the universe is going to stop me! Perfect. But then we get to your notes, your local notes, the subject headings, stuff that you can argue takes some creativity and creative judgment to put into that record. Does that constitute copyrightable material? So we have that. It sure can. (laughs) (laughs) So we got this, uh, so we got this mixture of facts and not feelings, but opinions in this record. Opinions that are masquerading as facts. So you have that mark record, and then you put it into a database. Now, in the past, copyright law has around databases have centered around sweat of the brow. So essentially, the collection, the the work of putting into that database can allow the creator of that database, the owner of that database, copyright status over that database. That has since been struck down. That's That's been a long time since that's been struck down. Now you're getting into the arrangement of the materials. That's what OCLC was thinking, I think, during the uh, 2008 licensing policy change. OCLC in this current lawsuit is claiming, I'm not sure if they're claiming copyright or license or over the enhancements made to the World Cat record that may or may not be in the individual library's database. So part of what we have here is OCLC is now saying that their enhancements are copyrightable and Metador should not have these enhancements in there because there's a contractual agreement that this information is not going to be shared. With the current suit, what I'm understanding OCLC is saying is basically giving any of these records is a breach of contract, not because of their originality or enhancements, but just because they're OCLC records. And they are OCLC records by the nature of the fact that they have an OCLN. Um, is that the right word I'm looking for? Right? Acronym? It's been a while now. They have a control number, OCN, right? OCLC control number, OCN. And that indicates sort of their relationship to OCLC. Is that right? I have to look this up again, but I think that the presence of a OCLC control number doesn't necessarily necessitate that it's a world cap record. I have to double check yeah. that, though. I mean, I would definitely say it doesn't. But I would also say like that I think that was I felt like someone mentioned that that was part of the argument. Maybe it was in uh, Karen's piece. Gone for a while now. Let's start asking the action oriented questions in terms of what got this whole thing going, which is how can libraries take ownership of the catalog and like what kind of infrastructure would we have to imagine for it to do that? This is where we get to get speculative and actually imagine how we want things to be instead of how we constantly are iterating them towards not being as horrible as they could be. Is that your cat? I am so sorry. Clopping? Or is he throwing up? (laughs) I am so sorry. Let me mute. (laughs) (laughs) Meow. So that was Sophia's commentary about how we could take the catalog back. Um, It's going to be a mess. (laughs) Because OCLC is not going to go down with a fight. And there are still a lot of libraries that still believe that OCLC is a cooperative. And even if they have misgivings about OCLC's actions around making them pay to put records 
into the system that then they would have to pay again to access in addition to other services. OCLC has the scale that scale and reach that many of alternatives may not have. So a part of it is again trying to figure out the infrastructure so we can so we can think about how can we scale not only on a national level, a US level, but how can scale on an international level that OCLC has right now? May I ask a question? And this is going to sound silly considering I used to be a metadata librarian. I'm not a metadata librarian anymore. It's so fucking weird. Um, but I have mainly not done um, mark cataloging. If an institution were to, say, stop subscribing to OCLC, like stop using WorldCat, like move on to an alternative service or whatever, all of their local records and stuff, like, do they get to, do they just have to redo their entire catalog if they stop paying OCLC? Or, because that is also a thing with infrastructure we need to think about is how do we support libraries who are thinking about making a switch like this. You notice that in the lawsuit, OCLC is not suing the customers who are theoretically going to put their records in Metador. You don't sue the paying customers. So if OCLC were to go after a library who has decided, well, actually, there are libraries who have released their med- their MARC records. I think Harvard's one of them where they just say, our individual library database is CCO. Go forth and use. So it's already been done. Thanks, Kyle. <laughs> it's probably it's probably somebody's doing. So it's already been done, but at the same time, I doubt that OCLC is going to be quiet if there seems to be a movement among libraries themselves to create an alternative again. This puts OCLC in a particular bind. They can't sue individual libraries. That 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 is not a good look. They again, they chose to sue Clarivate instead of the paying customers. Yeah, the, the paying customers who are the ones who are supposedly violating their use contracts, right? Precisely. Yeah. So maybe the trick is to have a bunch of libraries who are still subscribing and still using MARC records, start to build an independent one, not using the records. I'm just trying to think, because if you, if you, if you bail on OCLC and then immediately start doing something like that's just grounds for getting sued again, right? That just means you're small and they're just going to come in and sweep you up. And I mean, they're trying to, they're trying to challenge Clarivate of all fucking companies, right? What are they going to do to a small collective, you know, a small collection of libraries who are trying to build something I'm just trying to think of how to use that to your advantage. Don't sue the customer, even if the customer is trying to build something that is a direct competition to what you do. I don't know. Yeah, legal action is probably one. It's only an. It's only one tool in the toolbox. I have a feeling that OCLC would then not go the legal route at first, but go into the lean into the member cooperative fairy tale that they keep propagate they keep propagating that even though decades that that has died decades ago so they could possibly say we know you are dissatisfied here are some things that we can do but as a reminder if you really want to go this route here's all the labor you have to do and nothing scares an administrator more than giving them a big number 
of work that has to be done that of the cost of cataloging that has to be done because you know cataloging is a cost center of a cost center it's a meta cost center i mean i imagine there's the infrastructure is so tricky but luckily the protocols are all open and well understood the records are more or less out there and could be cleaned. And you, I mean, people have done some amazing stuff that I never thought would be possible as quickly as it happened, like what the hour research formerly on paywall people have been able to do by taking Microsoft Academic Graph and turning it into a free database that anyone can API records from. Like, you know, it's not done yet and it needs to be cleaned up and fixed. And it's, it's still not as good as Google Scholar in terms of researcher use, but in terms of being able to pull these records with ROR's atti- attached to them so you know that which publication happened at which university and you can do that for free that's extremely powerful and it's extreme challenge to especially like Elsevier. Yeah, definitely. And one alternative that we already have out there which has the possibility of scaling is Open Library. Open Library has been out there. There have been library workers who have been working and getting metadata in their collections and whatnot. So we have some infrastructure there. It's just a matter of could could projects and services like Open Library be the new home, the new centralized home. So we talk a lot about decentralized versus centralized and some of the potential downfalls of doing the decentralized route because cataloging needs a certain level of quality control for it to be effective. And if you don't have authority work, if you don't have people reconciling duplicate entries even different capitalization between two records can make a system say you have two different separate works when you actually just have a single work in your hands. I think the infrastructure in terms of scaling on a technical level, I think might be easier. As you said, the protocols are open. Who's going to fund it? And who's going to be the maintainers? Because that's one of the things that OCLC provides is people who enhance these records. And as with any collaborative or cooperative project or organization, figure out how much organizations are going to pay what, who's going to provide the people to do the enhancements and whatnot. And that gets tricky really fast when you consider that many cataloging and metadata departments have been decimated due to outsourcing and layoffs. Yeah. It can be done. A lot of catalogers and metadata folks, I find, sometimes end up working for vendors. And so Mm -hmm. this could be... It's like the vendors themselves, I, I was about to say, do we do the deal with the devil? But you have to realize that the individuals that are in working in these vendors are not the devils themselves. It's just the administration that they're working for. Do we find opportunities of collaboration between people who have those skills, may not be working in libraries anymore, but find ways where vendors can support this cooperative project that is not centralized under one vendor, but instead it's a cost share between libraries and vendors. It's it's not going to be OCLC masquerading as a member cooperative, but instead a different type of collaborative organization. Yeah. I mean, the problem would be maintaining revenue streams for 
continuing operations. So anything that you created, so like you mentioned using, if we were to use like open library, open library currently isn't really monetized in any way. It takes its money from donations and the internet archive business that does web archiving for government and business and stuff like that. So if you were to start relying on it, I think it would have to start justifying some the additional costs by creating a product. And I, I worry about what that product might be. Although if they could sell a product that allowed libraries to do controlled digital lending easily and they provide a service for it, I can see a lot of libraries buying that. So, but they also might not exist after the next, after they get sued by all the big publishers. So, because they screwed up, yeah. I don't trust the internet archive all that much. I've been in too many meetings with them where I'm just like, I'm getting bad vibes, man. I don't know. Something about this is off. And, and that's one of the drawbacks of relying, overly relying on a major organization. And so my experience with oh, working in OhioLink, you got, you got uh, over 80 member libraries in OhioLink. But honestly, the, the, the main member who makes the decisions is the TM, Ohio State. And so the organizations that have the money and they have the staff and they have the capital, the political capital in any type of situation where you're supposed to be doing a collaboration. This is something that any cataloging collaborative project will have to navigate in terms of if your larger institutions start to have cold feet or decide that they don't want to bear the brunt of the cost because simply because they're a larger institution and the smaller institutions can't pitch in more. I wonder if there's an avenue here to utilize like state libraries more. Cause I know that, you know, they're often incredibly underfunded and, you know, don't have the financial stability much like library of Congress like doesn't, but it makes me wonder if like, yeah, using that sort of combination of big li- big influential library systems combined with state library could, and it's kind of the same thing with, with like privacy concerns, like how do we put pressure on vendors to do privacy like better? How do we get that combined like power enough to actually make them stop and think? And my brain always goes back to like state libraries because you can, it's small enough that I don't know. I'm not thinking very well today. So, or like state library associations. I mean, I don't know. It, it's it's hard to get your head around this question. Is is essentially how do we create something that allows libraries to control their work and their labor value? In in, in a system where again. It's expected that if you build a system like this, you have to make you have to have a revenue stream. And quite honestly, any attempt to create a revenue stream of a collaborative cataloging project is just going to most likely fall into the same pitfalls as OCLC. They either have to monetize because the infrastructure is too costly and they need to pay people to enhance those records or they see dollar signs flash across their eyes because capitalism. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you were to create an alternative to OCLC, it would more or less end up just looking like OCLC 
probably go through all the stages of its development much quicker too, considering, you know, you never know who's going to get into a leadership position there. But there should be some model we can figure out. I mean, we've we've come up with more clever models in terms of things like subscribe to open for open access journals and things that people said would never work that are working. So, you know, they're still early days, but they're possible. So we've gone for a while. Uh, any closing thoughts? Anything you want people to check out that you're working on? Or do you want people to leave you alone? Oh, goodness. I suppose I should probably do the shameless plug for my new book that was just published a couple of weeks ago. So if you haven't already looked on the LDH Consulting Services website or my Twitter account at YoBJ, you might have noticed a new book about patron privacy. So the book title is Managing Data for Patron Privacy. I co-wrote it with Kristen Brighty, excellent librarian down at Caltech. We are both badgers. So we are celebrating the publication of our book with the good cheese. You can find me at Yo underscore BJ on Twitter. I promise I will tweet a happy tweet once in a great while amongst all the dumpster fires that are happening with privacy in this world. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that's about it. So thanks so much, Becky, for coming on. Thank you. Good night.